0: This is why we lock our doors at
1: night.
2: Attacked all over
1: California. The community was taken hostage. (laughs) Brutal
2: homicides.
1: One of the most prolific serial killers in the history of this state, if not in this nation. Today we're
0: going to launch a national campaign to help identify the Golden State Killer.
3: I'm Joke Vinciun, And I'm Biagio Messina. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Unmasking a Killer companion podcast. We're the producers behind the HLN documentary Unmasking a Killer, which investigates the unsolved case of the Golden State Killer, one of the nation's most prolific, uncaught serial killers.
4: And it's hard for us to imagine today how the Golden State Killer managed to evade law enforcement throughout the state of California and continue to get away with crime after crime but technology and media were quite different in the late 70s when this offender's crime spree began. There were no cell phones, no internet, not even the 911 emergency system we take for granted now. That's the nature of your emergency. And without that technology, crimes that happen in a community like the suburbs of Sacramento were only covered in the local newspapers and TV news.
3: That's why when the Golden State Killer or the East Area Rapist, as he was known at the time, left Sacramento and started attacking in Contra Costa County in October of 1978, law enforcement there had no knowledge of his previous crimes or that the attacks in their county could somehow be related to this serial offender.
4: Retired Contra Costa County Detective Larry Crompton, who spoke with us at length for the documentary, explains the role that media played in the Golden State Killer's reign of terror.
5: Back in the 70s, when this was going on, the news media wasn't like it is today. Today, if a dog bites somebody back in Boston, Massachusetts, California is gonna know about it because television is gonna be everywhere. Back in those days, that didn't happen. If it was not in your newspaper, You didn't hear about it. If it was not in your area, you wouldn't see it on television. Television wasn't the way it is today, and they only had it on maybe a half hour at night, and that was it. So it had to be local in order for you to get it. And what happened when the news media did get it out there, the people in that town would know what was going on, and then they would prepare themselves for it. But like I said... In my area, we did not know of the 30-some rapes that had happened in the Sacramento area before he came to our area. We had not heard about it at all. And when we did hear about it, we couldn't believe that that would be going on and that he hadn't been caught if that was going on. And we didn't figure that out until we got involved and found out how hard it was to find him because he knew what he was doing. He knew how to search areas without being noticed. We knew how he could get away before the people were able to get to a phone or be able to get to a neighbor to let them know that they had been attacked. Within that time, he could get into traffic and he would be gone.
3: And while surrounding cities and the law enforcement agencies may not have initially known about the Sacramento cases, one person who was closely monitoring local newspaper coverage of those attacks was the offender himself. Once the Sacramento Bee reported the East Area Rapist was only attacking females who were home alone, the offender responded by attacking couples.
4: Contra Costa County District Attorney Investigator Paul Holes, who was featured in last week's podcast also spoke with us about the often overlooked male victims in this case, who were tied up and left in the bedroom while their partners were sexually assaulted in another room in the house. Here's part of that conversation.
2: Well, I think that is uh, very important for people to understand. You know, these, the Northern California cases are often referred to as, you know, approximately 50 rape cases. What People have to understand what this offender was doing is when he's going inside that house, he's not only sexually assaulting the female, he is binding a male up. He is threatening that male with his life. He's putting a gun to the back of the male's head and putting basically incapacitating him, rendering him helpless, and then going and sexually assaulting his wife, in essence, in the presence of the male. Uh, These men were emasculated. They, uh, to this day, have guilt about allowing their loved one to have been attacked in such a manner. These guys are true victims in every sense of the word. If there had been, let's say, just a male inside the house, an offender had come inside the house and had committed this crime, bind the victim up, put a gun to the back of his head, threaten him with his life, this offender would be looking at a crime that would possibly put him away for life. So this is a very, very serious offense just by itself. These men to this day live with that guilt. And in talking to them, I feel their pain and I see it. Uh, I've had several of the victims, several of the male victims literally break down either in person or talking to them on the phone. So they are extremely traumatized to this very day.
4: Yeah, as, as a female, I'm assuming going through it, you're just wanting to live. You're just wanting to live. That's the story that we, we hear. You know, you're just, okay, how do I get through this? But to think about the men being tied up in bed with plates on the back, you're like, do do I risk it? Do I get up? Do I save her? Do I just lay here? Am I weak? Is that the smart thing to do? I, I mean, the, the thoughts that must have been going through their heads at that time. Has to be horrific.
3: As a husband, I mean, I, I can't imagine being in that situation, and no matter what choice you make, you're gonna, something's gonna go wrong. There's no right choice really to make in that situation, and so you, I imagine it sticks with you for the rest of your life.
2: Right, and, and, and it has, and, and these guys, you know, think, well, if I had done something differently, maybe if I had gotten up right away and, and tried to run at him. Right, I could have done something different and prevented this Well we saw in a couple of cases What happened when the males got up And went after the Golden State Killer That's what happened with Dr. Offerman He was able to get up, slip his bindings, get up And try to charge the offender The offender shot him and killed him Uh, Gregory Sanchez got up and was face to face with the offender And Gregory Sanchez ended up being bludgeoned to death So these living male victims, they may think, well, things could have been different if I had just responded differently early on before being bound. And the reality is, is that they very likely could have ended up dead.
4: Yeah, I I think that's just another great example on how the terror that the Golden State Killer, you know, put on California isn't just specific to the 70s. These these female and male victims um, are still living with that today.
2: Just the the victims themselves are still living with that today, as well as the communities in where this guy offended. You know, you still have people today that are paranoid about what possibly is going to happen because of their experiences of having the Golden State Killer prowling in their neighborhood and attacking their neighbors.
3: And no one knows that better than Jane Carson, victim number five of the East Area Rapist she was also the first victim interviewed by retired Sacramento Sheriff's Deputy Carol Daly, uh, who was on the East Area Rapist Task Force at the time. Jane and Carol share their story coming up. honored to welcome two very special guests. Carol Daly, retired Sacramento Sheriff's deputy, one of the first women on the force and a key investigator during the East Area Rapist's reign in Sacramento from 1976 to 1978. And Jane Carson, victim number five of the East Area Rapist attacks in Sacramento.
4: Carol and Jane have a very special bond going back 40 plus years now. So thank you both for being here.
3: Thank you for having us. Thank you. You know, Carol, you know, with the East Area Rapist now known to be the Golden State Killer, being so efficient in evading law enforcement, uh, were you ever worried that he might also be listening in to police radios or communication?
0: I'm not sure at the time if he would have been, because our communications 40 years ago in law enforcement were so much different. You know, we were still typing reports on manual typewriters. We um, had pagers. Uh, We didn't have cell phones. And so we had to stop at restaurants or gas stations or wherever and use a phone to call in and get our information. And we had um, a radio system And I'm not sure whether he would have had privilege to listen in on uh, radio calls at that time. But it was a completely different era than the communications that we have today.
4: I also love part of, of investigating this story was really trying to understand the 1970s and not just in terms of law enforcement, but in terms of community and society. And I want to direct this to you, Jane, because today we hear almost daily about rape culture or Law and Order Special Victims Units been on the air for 19 years. But this series of rapes by the East Area Rapist occurred during the 70s and specifically from 76 to 78 in Sacramento. Can you tell us, Jane, from your experience, like how rape was viewed back then? Was it something a woman would easily come forward with?
6: Oh, absolutely not back then rape was very rarely discussed i know in my own case i was so ashamed of what um had happened to me that uh i didn't share it with anyone except you know my husband and uh and i my mother knew and one friend and that was it i can remember going to a party with uh some other women from the uh airbase and cocktail party, and they were all talking about the East Area Rapist and how he was cutting off nipples and he was doing this and that to the women, and I just sat there in awe because I wanted so much to come out and scream. You don't know what you're talking about. I was one of his victims, but I couldn't. I didn't want to tell anyone, and I think, uh, you know, days times, times have changed. You know, I'm no longer ashamed of what happened to me, and, you know, I want you know I want people to know my story and back then I didn't again I didn't I didn't want to share it with anyone and and I was just looking back at some of my old records and I realized that I did not even go to the rape crisis center in Sacramento until January and I had been raped in October and robbed in September so it took me all those months to be able to uh share with someone else um, about my assault. And boy, that was that was um, the beginning of my healing.
4: Yes, for sure. Um, Carol, we actually looked at some of the statistics from the 70s and it showed 71 percent of men convicted of rape served no jail or prison time whatsoever. That doesn't even account for those cases never prosecuted or reported. Did rape cases feel like almost an extra impossible crime to get justice for? I don't know
0: if I would say it was an impossible crime to get justice for. Rape cases um, at that time took a lot of time. And even like in Jane's case, by the time uh, I got to the scene and we went to the hospital, we sat there for ages waiting for the doctor to come out and for the examination to take place. And I felt horrible because I couldn't stay with Jane. Uh, There were other matters that were pressing on the investigation and I had to leave. And so I had to leave her. It was a horrible feeling. But as a result of the East Area rape cases, it revolutionized the way law enforcement looked at rape cases and what we did. Uh, We developed uh, rape kits and we worked with the hospitals to say, as soon as we come in, we want our victims to be seen right away. They had specialists uh, in the emergency rooms, they had nurses, they had people that would come and take care of the victims right away. But it was a long time coming. And were there a lot of people that did not report rapes? Yes, I am sure that there were. There was always the question, how many times did the East Area Rapist attack without a victim coming forward? And I said, I can't imagine a victim going through and the long ordeal of the rapist being in the home and all of the things that occurred without them coming forward. But um, there were some officers that felt that there may have been other rapes when the victim simply did not want to come forward because she was too embarrassed. Rape crisis centers were just coming into their own and just starting to work uh, with law enforcement. And there were a lot of difficulties in the beginning because of trust issues between law enforcement and the rape centers and who was really the true supporter of the victim. But I can tell you from our perspective in law enforcement, Rape victims were a priority. They were very, very important that the cases be handled right, that the victims be handled right, and everything be done to bring the culprit to justice.
4: You mentioned the, the two-hour wait in, in the hospital, which is another part of the story you both share that I think you know, we get a lot of feedback on. Jane, do you remember that wait? Do you remember what that was like? Oh, I,
6: I remember my angel, Carol, just sitting there with me for the longest time and of course, there were no cell phones again, so you know she couldn't stay you know until I was you know in to see the doctor and have my exam. You know she had to get on with her her work, which I certainly understood that. But uh, you know, we're just fortunate today to, um, whenever a uh, a rape victim goes to the hospital, normally there is someone from a rape crisis center that will be with her and be her advocate, and that makes such a difference. Um, I did not have that privilege. Thank goodness I had Cal sitting there with me for a while, but uh, but when I was in having my exam, you know, I was alone.
0: You know, and that's the other thing that is kind of embarrassing for victims is that we like to be there with the victim, or just even right outside the door, so that we can answer questions that uh, the doctor may have as to what it is that they need to look for and what they have to do, and that's what. It, when the rape kits were developed so that we could you know comb um for uh, pubic hairs and transfers and skin underneath the fingernails uh any evidence you know that they might be able to collect uh, like i said it kind of revolutionized how rape investigations were done
6: the rape the rape was um terrible enough but also going in and and having that exam was also uh terrifying. First of all, you know, I had a male doctor and uh one minute I'd be sobbing and just uh, absolutely losing control and then the next minute I would be laughing and joyous. And the reason for the two emotions were Number one, when I'm sobbing and crying, I'm just, you know, reliving what had just happened. And then I'm, I'm joyous the next moment because I realized, my gosh, my son and I survived. So I'm sure the doctor and the nurses that were tending to me thought I was a little crazy, but that was the emotion that I was going through. And then, you know, the whole, after the exam, then I had to, which was not pleasant. Then I had to have a shot of penicillin, so I didn't, you know, get an STD. And then I had to have a morning after pill, so I didn't get pregnant. And it was a very, very unpleasant experience,
4: yeah, I can only imagine when you first reported the crime, was it only male officers responding? When did Carol arrive and how did that feel?
6: Oh, yes. They I think there were three policemen there. This was the house across the street from where I was I was uh, attacked. Yes, there were three policemen there and I just felt so uncomfortable. First of all, I was in a state of shock as you can imagine. And, um, I did not feel comfortable talking with them, men, you know, at that moment. I didn't, I wanted to stay as, as far away as I could from, from any male. And then Cal showed up and, uh, that was such a relief. I just felt such, oh my, I, I felt like I was saved from the devil. <laughs> And, uh, you know, she was so wonderful taking me to the emergency room and sitting with me there for so long. You know, I'll just never forget how and I just appreciate that so much.
3: Now, Carol, this this actually wasn't your first rape case, correct?
6: Oh, no, I had, uh, I
0: came on Sacramento Sheriff's Department in 1968. And after the first six months of training, I was selected to go to the Detective Division where I specialized in, uh, crimes against children, you know, molest, incest, abuse, neglect. And then I also worked, uh, rape cases. So up until the time that I was assigned to the homicide detail, my whole career was working crimes against, uh, women and assault and rape cases. Uh, so no, this was this was not my first rape case. Uh, in fact, the reason I was pulled from homicide to work on the task force was because of all of my experience through the years of working with uh, sexual assault victims. Carol, what
3: made Jane's rape case different from other rapes you had investigated?
0: Jane's case was my first interview with an East Area Rape Victim. Okay, she was victim number five, and so the sex assaults were being handled by um, another bureau because I was working homicide. So when Jane's case came along, she was my first contact. But what I uh, remember most about Jane, and she talks about you know crying and then being happy and everything, but what I remember most is how strong she was, how willing she was to talk about the details. It's very difficult um, when you're interviewing a rape victim because there are so many different crimes that occur. Uh, you, You could be talking about oral copulation. You could be talking about sodomy. You could be talking about um, the actual rape itself, and you could be talking about any assault if she was injured you know with the knife or uh, anything so in trying to explain to a victim why we ask so many questions it 's because there are so many different crimes involved, and we really want to know exactly everything and because of the method of operation that the rapist did was how we were able to tie a lot of these cases together.
6: And then, too, Cal allowed me the freedom to express myself where I wouldn't have done that as thoroughly if I was
4: just being interviewed by the male. Right. She created an environment where you felt comfortable.
6: Exactly. And trust. Yes, exactly. I did. And I felt that she cared. I felt that she truly cared about me. And I just wasn't another victim. And I think at the time she drove me to the emergency room, I think I asked her, do you know who this man is? Do you know who he is? And I think at that time they were just putting the pieces together as to, uh, you know, this is a serial rapist.
4: So, Carol, once you and Richard Shelby realized this was a series of rapes, I assume you went back and then re-interviewed the earlier victims? Right. Our concern was has always been
0: for the victims. So, uh, we did a, 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 sheet full of a questionnaire sheet because we were trying to find out if there were any common denominators that might've linked the victims or the crimes together. And as much as we looked for it, we couldn't, we could we looked at age, we looked at hair color, we looked at profession, we looked at where they shopped, we looked at where they went to school, um, where they drove, what kind of car they drove, where they had a service. We looked at everything that you might do in your life to see if we could come up with a common denominator. And, um, at one point, we did a counseling session for the victims to come together and to kind of share about their experience. We offered it to the men who were part of um, the crimes uh, that were in the homes when the women were attacked, and. I couldn't get any of them to come forward and do any counseling. But counseling for rape victims has always been very, very important. And rape crisis clinics across the nation have just solidified and have improved so much and are really a godsend for uh, victims to be there for them.
4: Jane, do you remember that meeting with the other victims? No, um,
6: I don't. But I um, personally had uh, seven. There were seven of us that had also been raped by this same man. They met at my house one day for lunch. And uh, I'll never forget that meeting. Some of us cried. Some of us laughed. Some of us just sat there in shock. But to go around the room and talk about this man that had raped every one of us, it was just... Oh, wow. I don't even know the words to describe the event. But... uh I'm sorry I never kept in touch with those women because they were so strong and they wanted so much, you know, to get together. But then when we did and we started talking about what he had done to us, I mean, again, some of us were just sobbing. Some of us couldn't speak. But uh, I didn't get to the other meeting. No. One thing I would like to say about having um, men in a – a group afterwards, I think, is getting counseling. I think is imperative because it's just like with my husband. I mean, he had no idea what to do with me, and why should he? He's never experienced, a, you know, a wife that has been raped before. And I feel it's it's crucial that uh, men receive counseling because it's so um, it's terrifying for them as well. And I think it, you know, it really affected my husband that he he wasn't there to protect his wife and his son.
4: And he wasn't even in the home when you were attacked. Some of these other men were
6: also right. tied they up. they were. And... Exactly. They were. Yeah, I'm sure,
3: you know, it's really difficult as, as a husband, you know, to obviously you're victimized, not in the same way as you were. But it's 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 also a wound that can affect your relationship oh, and,
6: and, affect and your did. self-confidence. Yes, it certainly did. You know, my husband was great about, you know, staying home the first week, putting an alarm system on the house, but he didn't know how to deal with me. You know, he wanted me to, you know, oh, get over it. You know, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Well, I wasn't okay. I was a hot mess until I, um, you know, I got some counseling and then, and, and then I started talking, you know, to other rape victims and I realized that what I was feeling was normal for someone that had just experienced, you know, what I had been through. So. It was very healing to me to, you know, to get to that rape crisis center and to start talking with other um, rape survivors.
4: Another interesting fact about this case is that Sacramento did not get the 911 emergency system until 1984. That's almost six years after your attack. So, Jane, once you thought the offender had left, you ran outside and a neighbor came and helped you, correct?
6: Exactly. Yes. Yes. I don't even know if he cut my phone line. I I don't know. I didn't even try to go to the phone. I just ran around um, the side of the house and through the gate and screamed. And then a neighbor came and took me to her home across the street.
3: Now, Carol, obviously, these types of attacks are a very high stress situation um, for the victims and for law enforcement. Now, how did you in law enforcement sort of handle these calls and dispatch? What was that like and, and how tense was that?
0: Well, getting a call in the middle of the night Regardless of what kind of a crime it was, but especially a rape or a homicide, your adrenaline starts going. I mean, it starts pumping. Fortunately, my husband was the SWAT sergeant on the uh, department at the time. So I would get a phone call, and while I was getting ready to run out of the house, he would be looking up the map coordinates for me and telling me where to go because we were still pulling out paper maps to try to figure out how to get to some okay. of these crime scenes. So, no map you know <laughs> Right, right. You didn't, you didn't have somebody guiding you. So your adrenaline is going and you want to get there as quickly as you can. And I know on two occasions, I was stopped by one by city police department and the other by highway patrol because I was going about 90 miles an hour trying to get to a crime scene. So your adrenaline is going. And then once you get there, uh, to me, the most important thing is making the contact with the victim. But I look at Jane, and I look at some of the other East Area rape victims who have come forward, and what they still have to deal with every day is not knowing who this man was and is he somebody who is could still stalk them? Is he somebody that they could still see on the street? In the back of their mind, there, I don't believe, is ever going to be the freedom from that fear until the East Area Rapist is identified.
6: I agree with that 100%, Carol. And then every day, it seemed that every other day it was Victim number five, victim number 10, victim number 20. I mean, it was just constant in the paper, right in your face every other day. It was crazy. Yes, it was. So everyone was living in fear. Everyone.
4: Yeah, it amazes me that he terrorized Sacramento for two years. Think about that. Where were you two years ago? I mean, it's a long time to be worried that he's going to hit your house next.
6: Exactly. And then is he going to come back? Is he going to come back? Yes. Yes.
4: Yes. I know. And then
6: every time, you know, I I was so suspicious for so long and so angry, so full of revenge, so full of hate. Anytime someone would, a male would look at me, you know, a little strange, I would think, oh, that's him, <laughs> which may sound crazy, but I was very paranoid, of course. I was in the military. I thought maybe he, you know, had seen me at the military base at Travis. I was in school at Cal State. Maybe he was in one of my classes. Maybe he was in school with me at American River. I had no idea. So that was uh, frightening, always, always on my mind. And it still is. It still is.
4: Jane, as a victim who was hit early in the series, how real was the fear he'd come back for you?
6: Well, I had received phone calls, you know, where he would hang up and uh oh, I was I lived in fear for a long time that he definitely could come back. I remember at night I would sleep with my husband and my son in our king size bed and of course we had the alarm system on the home, but it didn't really make any difference because, you know, this guy was a magician as far as the way he could uh, break into homes and also um, he was an athlete the way he could do his he was an escape artist but uh, every night it seemed that uh, the helicopter was hovering overhead with a with a light flashing in the neighborhood and uh, you know and just report after report of one rape after the other and not knowing whether or not he was going to return
3: Yeah, that that must have just been incredibly scary and frustrating and uh, so much that I can't even imagine. You know, Carol, two years you were chasing this evil, right? Feeling close to catching him, then feeling the disappointment as he got away. Uh, What's that like as a law enforcement professional?
0: Well, time and time again, we thought, oh, you know, we have this guy. Uh, We traveled out of town to rapes that were similar and, and really thought that we had the guy identified and it would, it would all fall apart the same as it has over the last 40 years. Very frustrating. I think, um, that after we knew the rapist had left Sacramento and there were no more rapes, uh, in Sacramento, I asked to be able to go back to homicide. And they said, well, you know, there's a lot of stress in homicide. And I said, not like rape cases, uh, where you are continually worried about the victim, trying to support them, and then just the frustration of not having been able to identify. And it was very stressful, and I can tell you to this day, There is not a day that goes by that I don't think about the East Area Rapist, and the only comforting thought for me after all these years is knowing Sacramento County did everything they could in their power to identify uh, the East Area Rapist. I kept records, just a notebook of things um, over the years, and I'm I'm not sure why I kept them, but now that all of the media attention has come out, I'm really glad that I did because after 40 years— It kind of refreshed my memory as to everything that we really tried in our power to identify who the rapist was. And the agencies and the um, other people that were involved that helped us in any way that they could, Department of Motor Vehicles, Livermore Laboratories, and their worldwide network of computers they had at the time, there wasn't anybody that said no to us when we went to them for help. And so I know... We did everything that we could to identify who the East Area Rapist was. Now, Carol, one of the things
3: I found so shocking was that at one point, law enforcement thought you might be the East Area Rapist's next target. How did that happen? How did that feel?
0: Well, because he had made threats at one of the rape victims that he was going to kill the pigs who were investigating the case. So the alarm system they had at the time, I mean, we had young children at home, and the alarm system that they had at the time was they put a mat in the center of the house, and if anybody walked across the mat, it would ring into, uh, and I tell you what, we had between dogs and kids, to me, that was more upsetting to have to worry about that alarm. And I, I said, don't take it out. Out, take it out. And, you know, it's easy to say, well, we had guns in the house and we could defend ourselves. A lot of the victims had guns in their homes and they were not able to defend themselves. And then, of course, one of the last cases within the city was walking distance from my house. But see, you know, you, you couldn't go on the computer and find out something about everybody uh, that you can today. So whether he knew I lived that close or whether it just happened to be on his way out of town, it was right off the freeway, I-5, I don't know whether he was toying with my mind or if it was just a convenient target for him.
4: Wow. One of the things we've talked about before, Carol, is that you believe someone out there knows something. Someone out there knows him. What, What makes you believe that? I find it very hard to believe that someone
0: who uh, was away from their home had so many different types of clothing, jackets, gloves, shoes, ski mask, and uh, with all of the amount of property that he stole. I believe that somebody, whether it's a mother, whether it's a partner, whether it's a girlfriend at the time— I firmly believe there was somebody that knew who the East Area Rapist was, and we just haven't heard from them. Whether or not those people are still alive now, I don't know. But I still feel that the right person just hasn't called in with the right suspicions about somebody.
6: But I think that's going to happen. I think that's going to happen, Carol. I truly do, especially now with all the publicity about this case. Somebody does know something. They must.
4: Do you think they're waiting to speak up until he passes?
6: I, that that could be. Maybe they're afraid that that could be a possibility.
3: Well, knowing everything we know about this case, I mean, we tend to agree with both of you. Someone knows something. Uh, we just need them to step forward.
4: Right. Right. What do you want these people to know? Why is it important that they that they do pick up that phone?
6: Well, we need um, resolution. We need closure. So you know, I am. Um, I'm not sorry that I was raped. And I think there was a purpose for the fact that I was raped. I think I was, you know, God chose me to be one of those 50 women because I feel that, uh, he knew eventually that I would bring glory to him, which I, I try to do when I work with other women. But I get so angry when I think of, of what he's done to destroy and disrupt all these families and these victims. I mean, it's just horrendous, the crimes that he has committed.
4: Carol, Jane, we want to thank you for taking the time today to talk to us. Um, Jane, the strength with which you've spoken out for all victims is to be admired and because you spoke up and frankly continue to do so we can get the story out there and hopefully shake loose the tip that brings answers to this case and carol um, as a woman i want to thank you for doing your job well for going above and beyond for getting the system to recognize where it needed to step up and frankly for helping these survivors like jane feel worthy and respected in one of the most horrific times in their lives so thank you both thank you so much thank you So despite the fact that the Golden State Killer has managed to evade law enforcement for the past 40 plus years, there have been many advancements in law enforcement tools and California state law itself as a result of this case, including the All Felon DNA Database established in 2004 and 2010's Deceased Inmates Project, which collects DNA from inmates who died in prison. Sacramento District Attorney Anne-Marie Schubert speaks to both coming up next. We are honored to welcome our next guest, Sacramento District Attorney Anne-Marie Schubert, who was about 12 years old during the East Area Rapist reign in Sacramento and remembers clearly the fear that gripped the community at that time. She's been at the front line of this investigation for a couple of decades now, first as part of the cold case unit and now as a district attorney of Sacramento. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. DA Schubert, a question we get asked a lot is how did these different law enforcement agencies not communicate? For example, in Ventura County, right, we're looking at the Lyman and Charlene Smith murders. They were brutally murdered in such a way that officers thought this must be personal. So, detectives do what they do they follow the evidence and witness statements, and they end up charging and arresting a business associate of the couple. Now, luckily, justice prevails, and the charges were ultimately dropped. But with your experience as a district attorney, can you speak to the level of difficulty these jurisdictions must have faced, not just without DNA? But without an awareness that this was part of a larger crime spree. Help us understand that.
1: Well, I think, you know, you have to go back in time. I mean, today in 2018, we are very advanced technologically and forensically. And so this case would be very different if it was happening today. But these crimes started in, you know, 42 years ago. And so back in the day, while there were actually several folks that thought that these crimes up at North were connected to the crimes down south. There was no nothing forensically because we didn't have the technology. And so, you know, and we didn't have we didn't have cold case investigations back then. We didn't have units that would go back and look through these. I'm not sure if they had VICAP or those kinds of things that allowed people to communicate together. So, you know, what has brought this case together without any hesitation is the fact that they're all connected by DNA.
3: Right. You know, and it's it's, it's interesting because you talk about technology, and I think we felt like one of the most exciting aspects of this case, which we tried to highlight in part three of the series, was that despite all the horrific things that the Golden State Killer manifested, you know, the silver lining, if there can be a silver lining to it all, is that he also made law enforcement better. You know, as a district attorney, where have you seen the biggest law enforcement gains because of this case?
1: Oh, I think without any hesitation, the biggest gains for law enforcement was the passage of Prop 69 in 2004, because I think you most people... May or may not know that, you know, one of the the family members of Bruce Harrington or uh, Keith Harrington, his brother, helped fund that initiative because it allows us now in California to collect DNA from individuals that are either arrested for felonies, convicted of felonies. And it has massively expanded our DNA database and, and I mean, thousands and thousands of crimes have been solved uh, because of that, and so it's, it is absolutely the silver lining out of a very tragic case, but I think about how many other family members. And um, victims have, you know, cases have been solved because of that initiative, which came out of this horrific case.
3: That, that's amazing. And like we said, it's I mean, it's it's hard to look at something so awful and think there could be a silver lining. But if there is, it is the, the peace that so many people have received because of it.
4: Right. We also wanted to follow up and ask you um, how the dead inmates project is going. I know it's a massive undertaking. Where Where are you at with it? That's another example
1: of kind of silver lining things that have come out of this case is just that we know in California, as as I'm sure it's in other states, that many people died um, either in prison or on parole before they gave their DNA, and and um, because we didn't have the technology, and so we we know we this is years ago. In response to this case and a couple other cold cases in Sacramento, we started that project to go back and try to find DNA from people that died. And I, obviously, I don't mean by digging them up. I mean by looking for alternative places to find his his or her DNA. It's very labor intensive. It's also involves many of the same folks that are working on the Golden State Killer slash East Area Rapist. So. It's just it's there being worked and keep going, finding DNA and putting it in the data bank and pushing other jurisdictions to do the same thing.
3: You know, what should we as the public be on the lookout for? I mean, how can we help you solve this case?
1: I think it's by becoming informed. You know, law enforcement has done a number of things to put out new information, more information, like, for instance, in the last few months, information was put out through the media about what kinds of things were stolen you know, during the course of some of these crimes, and some of them are very unique, whether it's China, whether it's jewelry and And I say this, and I mean it, and I don't take it lightly that the I do believe that it's a needle in the haystack, but the needle's there somewhere, and so you know. If somebody comes across something that they think is odd and they look back and say, why would this person have something like this? It's to be vigilant. And I mean, there are so many people in this country, in this world that want to help solve this case and just don't ever underestimate the value of a tip. That's why I guess my my message to the public is don't ever underestimate that.
4: Is there a chance that he could be in jail in a different state where they may not have the kind of DNA laws that we have? Because this case you know technically it is much bigger than just california is there if if i'm a resident let's say in tennessee is there something i can do then do is, how can i find out if the laws there would a- allow you to check and make sure that the golden state killer is not in jail somewhere in the united states it's conceivable
1: that he could be in jail or prison somewhere else. I mean, California's laws are very, you know, I I actually credit Governor Brown when he was Attorney General, because he was very proactive about DNA, not just on the collection aspect, but also using things like familial searching. But what we've learned in response to this case is, and through kind of educating ourselves about other states, is not all states have the same laws. And so it really takes a, a massive movement to make sure that You know, everybody gets to pass their own laws, um, but what does it look like? How does it act? So the way for the folk for, you know, average citizens or, you know, individuals interested is just to look up what is the law in Tennessee? You know, we focused on California, but that does not mean that he did not move from here in 1986 to some other state.
4: In your opinion, how will this case get solved? It's going to, you know,
1: I've always said this, and I believe it 100 percent, the case will be solved by DNA. There's no question in my mind at the end of the day, it will be solved because of DNA.
3: Listen, D.A. Schubert, I just I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. You know, throughout this process, we've met some truly great members of law enforcement and the judicial community who are working hard every day to solve this case.
4: I know having met you, I know this is more to you than just your duty guiding you, your drive to bring some answers to these victims, victims who are people to you, not just names and faces. It's encouraging. Thank you for all you do. Well, thank you. I look forward to the day,
1: as I saw, I heard from one of the family members, the day they can put a face to a profile.
3: District Attorney Anne-Marie Schubert has echoed what everyone in law enforcement that we've talked to has said. This case will be solved with DNA And with the right tip. So again, if you have information about the Golden State Killer, you can call the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI. That's 1-800-225-5324. Or submit a tip online at tips.fbi.gov.
4: In part four of the Unmasking a Killer documentary airing this coming Sunday night, April 8th at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific on HLN, we're going inside the Golden State Killer's mind criminal psychologists and forensic profilers explain the meaning behind his crimes as they analyze his motives, patterns of behavior, personality, and upbringing, and what all of that might reveal about his identity. And on the next companion podcast, we'll delve even deeper into this psychopathic killer's mind with the help of senior FBI profiler, Dr. Mary Ellen O'Toole.
3: So watch part four of the documentary on HLN Sunday night, and then listen to the podcast on Monday. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please leave us a five-star rating and review while you're there.
4: Thanks for listening.